As we begin this morning, I thought I would just take a very uh, brief and very informal poll. Is there anyone in here this morning who really loves a story? Right? Every one of us should actually be raising our hands right now because every one of us <laughs> loves stories. Tommy, you don't love stories? Oh, you raised your hand. Good. We love stories. We human beings absolutely love stories. Little kids love to be read to. They like to be told stories. I like to be told stories from my dad and from my mom about when they were kids. I like to read stories about how the country came to be, how uh, things happened and occurred. We love to tell stories because it's part of our nature. We are, na we are by nature, storytelling, story-giving, story-receiving people. If you want just sort of a, a pop culture example of how much humans love stories, just keep in mind that in the first five or six months of 2019, <coughs> Disney released three Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, all within about six months. They made together a combined $5 billion. I guess I'm the only one overwhelmed by that. Why would three movies about comic book heroes make over $5 billion worldwide? Because we love stories. We love to get caught up in stories about heroes and villains, good overcoming evil. We love stories about events and subjects. We love the distraction, and we love the entertainment. But even more fundamentally... We love stories that explain who we are and help us understand our life and our meaning and our purpose. And the stories that we tell each other all build into, are undergirded by one big story. This morning, I want to give you just a real-life example of a story that has meaning and purpose and it has expl explanatory power. I have a new look this morning. I have a shaved head. It's unusual if you're not with us on a regular basis. If you're visiting, I don't always have a shaved head, but I shaved my head on Saturday morning. My beloved wife shaved my head on Saturday morning because there was something that happened Friday night that needed to be taken care of Saturday morning. You see, this shaved head is a strategic distraction from a broken tooth. As you may know, yeah, I know, it's silly, silly and stupid, I know. You didn't see the large gap in my face this morning, Jeff? The shine, distraction, achieving my purposes. You see, on Fridays, some of you may know this, I really enjoy smoking and devouring meat. Uh, if you're a vegetarian, my food eats your food. <laughs> So on Friday, I, I whipped up, uh, I didn't really whip up, but on Friday, I smoked a wonderful, moist, luscious batch of beef ribs, and it, as I was just really vigorously throwing myself into the consumption of one, I heard a <coughs> crack in my mouth, and I felt my <laughs> crown pop. The funniest part of this whole story is 30 seconds before my tooth broke, I was giving my wife a hard time about the way she was or was not satisfactorily consuming her beef rib, and she said, I worry about breaking a tooth. <laughs> <laughs> she had right. She's prophetic. So I heard, right, I, I prophetic. I heard the crack. I looked at Anna, and I said, I just broke a tooth. And she said, no, you didn't. I said, yeah, I really did. And I spit the tooth pieces out into my hands. I said, see? So on Saturday morning, right, a story explains 
the events of our lives. It has explanatory power. But its stories also wrap us up into a really big picture explanation of who we are, our identity, and what we are to be about, our life, our meaning, and our purpose. And it's not just me. I'm not just standing up here making these things up. In an article that I read on Psychology Today's website, uh, Arthur Dobrin explains this about stories. They provide a way of understanding our place in the scheme of things by structuring our understanding of events. They root us in an ongoing stream of history. They provide us with a sense of belonging and is helping establish our identities. Stories have explanatory power. They tell us who we are. But about meaning and purpose, they tell us more than that. They tell us what we're to be doing, the what of life. If you notice in your bulletin, I've recommended to you all a book called The Drama of Scripture. And the authors of that particular book say it this way. Some story provides the broader framework of meaning of every part of our lives. And whether we're aware of it or not, whether we uh, pay attention to it or not, is really kind of inconsequential. We live inside of a large story that forms us to seek to explain life and meaning and purpose. And so the question for us isn't whether there is a story or not. The question for us is, which story are we going to inhabit? The question for us really is, is there one true universal story that is true for everyone across all ages of time and history that is real and connected to what is really real and is universal, that is, for everyone? I'm going to say this morning that yes, the answer is yes. There is one true story that's connected to the really real and that is universal. I want to answer this question for us this morning by saying there is a story that connects to the real, that provides life and meaning and purpose, and that story is God's story, Holy Spirit-inspired, laid out for people to know Him and who they are in light of Him. This morning, after all is said, this is the main point. The Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures are God's story, the true story. And if we want to be truly human, if we want to be who God made us to be, we will inhabit that story, God's story, because it is the true story. Our primary biblical text this morning is, comes from Paul's second letter to his friend Timothy. We heard Nancy read for us this morning from this letter, uh, the third chapter of 2 Timothy, where, where Paul writes, As for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here in his encouragement to his young friend, Paul refers to the sacred writings and all scripture. 
And at the time and the place of Paul's writing, he would have been referring to what we call the Old Testament along with the apostolic proclamation of the gospel, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. And about these things, what we call the Old Testament and the gospel, Paul says it was breathed out by God. That word breathed out really ought to remind us of some things from Scripture. We saw uh, in the Old Testament that the, the Spirit of God hovered over the formless void. And in the Hebrew, that word is for spirit is breath. And we saw in Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet spoke to the breath, and the breath entered into the life of the dead bones. We saw that the Spirit is breath, the breath of God. And here what Paul is saying to his young friend Timothy is that God has breathed out. The Spirit is involved with the giving of Scripture. This claim is not actually new. Sometimes we read in the New Testament and we, we think that these are some sort of brand new things that we're reading. In some cases it's true, but the claim that Scripture is breathed out by God, that is God's very word, is rooted in the Old Testament itself. And we heard that this morning as Nancy again read, from us, read to us from Deuteronomy chapter 18. God through Moses declared, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And this, this, this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He ultimately is the prophet like Moses. But as the story of God progresses, we see in the Old Testament consistent statements from and about David. David at one point says, the Spirit of God spoke through me. We see Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets say, the Spirit of the Lord was upon me and spoke through me, or caused me to write, caused me to say... The Spirit of the Lord is revealing God's story. What was verbally proclaimed was also written down under God's direction. And this is what we mean then. When we say that Scripture is inspired by God, we mean that the Scriptures are God's word spoken and written through human words in such a way that the personality of both God and man is seen. And the scriptures, because of what they are, God's word, they have an authority that surpasses mere humanities. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has truly acted within time and within history, and God has caused his true story, the story of his being, his character, and his action to be written. And that applies to the Old Testament and to the Gospels, and that applies to the letters that we find in the New Testament. To say that all Scripture is breathed out by God includes all 66 books of the Bible that we have. And folks, if we ever hear a teaching that says we need to unhitch one part of the Bible from another part of the Bible, you need to run as far away from that as you can. Amen. The story that God inspired, the true story of the world, finds its center point in Jesus. This is really big for us. We have to understand why do we say the story of God is true? Because it's centered, not only is it revealed from the Holy Spirit, which makes it true, 
but it's centered upon the single individual who is the truest thing we can ever know, Jesus. Just after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus walked with two disciples along a dusty road, and he says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The true story of God is God's inspired Holy Spirit breathed out story that finds its center point in Jesus, the truest thing, the truest person we can ever know. This is why St. Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not a collection of, 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 of advice of how to live your best life now. No, it is a collection of God's inspired words centered on the person of Jesus, the author of our salvation. So all of the scriptures are completed in Jesus because he is the center of the story. He is the hero of the story. In their totality, the scriptures are the story of God and his involvement within his creation. As one author writes, scripture is a field of divine action. The agents of that divine action are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is this one big picture, overarching, mega, meta narrative that connects with what is really real. It is God's true story. It tells us about him. It tells us about who we are, created and dependent creatures, made in God's image, but fallen, sinful, broken, and in death. God's true story tells us that we are made for so much more than what we currently have, as we are creatures that God loves, and for whom God has sent Jesus to give new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. God's true story tells us why we are, and he tells us how we are to be truly human, knowing and being known first by him, offering him worship and glory and honor and praise. The true story that God tells, that God has written, it tells us about our past. It roots us in a timeline of history. It informs our present. It tells us why things are what they are, and it guides us into the future. It tells us how things are going to end up. This true story, this story that God writes, encompasses all of who we are made to be. It situates us within the world. It is the story that offers us life and meaning and purpose. The me meaning and purpose, perhaps, is something that can come out of a little bit of the, the last few verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's where life and meaning and purpose are found. In this story of God, life is found in connection to the creator due to his work through Jesus and the Holy Spirit to reconcile. Meaning is found rooted in the image of God and in the new life given in the mission that he shares. Purpose is found in his story as his story teaches us. It reproves us. It corrects us. And it trains us for righteousness. God's story provides life and meaning and purpose that God's people in Jesus Christ might be complete and equipped for every good work. For his worship, for his honor, for his praise.
And so this morning, I want for us to walk away from this worship service knowing that the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures are God's story. This is the true story. It really does connect to reality. It really is universal. It's for everyone. And it's trustworthy and it is true because the author himself is trustworthy and true. He is God. But there's a really big problem here. There is something wrong with our world today. The problem is that God's story isn't the only story that is told. There are stories told in this world that actively work against the true story of God. And so just as there is one true story of God, the true story of universal history and time, so there is a counterfeit. And the counterfeit is effectually and essentially wants to do one thing. Write God out of the story. The counterfeit essentially wants every one of us to believe that God is inconsequential. If he even exists at all, he is there to make you happy, wealthy, and wise. And that he doesn't exist for his own glory. And there are multiple manifestations of that one narrative that seeks to write God out and write man in. We ought not be surprised by this. Because God's true story, the scriptures themselves, tell us that it will happen. In fact, they tell us that it already has happened and has continued to happen and will continue. It happened first in Genesis chapter 3. This fundamental alternate story that seeks to explain life without God is human-focused, built upon individualism, the, the celebration of the self, built upon materialism, that life can be boiled down to the physical, and built upon consumerism. You are what you eat. Just make sure you eat a lot. The Tower of Babel found in Genesis chapter 11 can serve for us as a frame of reference. What does this false story look like? The people of the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11, this whole of humanity impressed with their own technological innovation, impressed with their own wealth and economic power, impressed with themselves, they work to build a monument to themselves for their own glory. They say, look how great we are. Now let's build a monument so other people can know how great we are. This is an example of the story that we like to be told, that false narrative, that man is the major of all things, that humanity is the center of meaning, that we are free to express the self and to live for the self, that we are obligated to progress through autonomous will and effort, that we are to consume as much as possible and make meaning for ourselves. Folks, this is what every competing story, every false narrative has ever tried to do. Remove God from the focus and put humanity as the focus. And here are some examples, some manifestations of what it looks like in 2019. Some manifestations out of our popular culture of what this meta false narrative explains. In his book called Seven Eves, Neil Stevenson writes a sci-fi thriller about the end of the world, but not the end of man. The moon in his book explodes, and catastrophe occurs. And through technology and the will to survive, humanity, though it had been whittled down to only seven women, conquers over the course of 5,000 years through scientific achievement to be able to repopulate the planet Earth. Just as the classic work, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Stevenson's modern tale is a 
is one of a man-centered materialism. There is only the physical. Humanity can solve its own problems. And if there is a deity invoked in the book, it is either as a curse word or as some sort of wishful thinking opiate for the masses that makes us feel better and stupid. Ford, Ford now is, is selling the new expedition by telling a story. It says, we the people are unstoppable. It's a story of man-centered consumerism. It's communicating to us, buy this car and be a part of the unstoppable human race. But if you drive a Chevy, you're just right out the door. <laughs> Politicians. Politicians make their living by getting elected and getting re-elected. And they do this by telling a story and convincing people that their story of what and why are the best explanation of things. Politicians along the spectrum of political theory, they promise, both promise freedom, they both promise flourishing, they all promise abundance defined by their platforms. These stories that politicians tell are about self-sufficient humans with the final goal of our own flourishing and only our own flourishing as we define it. Every competing story, these manifestations of the competing story, all are about humanity at its center <coughs> with stolen authority to define meaning and purpose. The very thing that these things cannot do is what they seek to do. You see, folks, the fake story, the false story, the true false news cannot save us. And they fail in the places they promise. Such alternate stories seeking to offer explanations of what and why, they're too shallow. They're not deep enough to save. One of my professors in seminary, his name is Rick Lentz, he calls these competing stories plastic because they're artificial constructs. They're made to imitate the real world, but at crucial junctures, they deviate from reality. These human-centered stories that are about our flourishing and our power, they lack a transcendent weight because they're centered on us. They can't solve our problems because they're centered on us. We cannot truly flourish under them because they're centered on us. And if we look for life, meaning, and purpose from them, we only find it in us. These competing stories cannot sustain us because they cannot fulfill their, their promises. These competing stories cannot give us life. They cannot give us meaning. They cannot give us purpose because they remove God from the pages. And I believe, I believe that these man-centered plastic stories that tell us that it's all about us are the reason why we live in the anxious age that we live today. We live in an age of agitation and reaction. We live in an age of thin skin and hyperbole. We live in an age of a competing narrative that are built upon human-centered foundations of individualism, materialism, and consumerism. This is an anxious age in which we live because this false narrative fails at every point. A narrative that is plastic, that is shallow, that is moldable, that is human-centered can only produce anxiety precisely because of its failure to keep its promises. A story of expressive individualism, crass consumerism, and godless materialism cannot deliver the goods of meaning and purpose. And you may be asking yourself this morning, yeah, that's true, but what's the point? I'm glad you asked. 
You were thinking it. I know you were. This is important for us. This is important for us as members, as individuals. This is important for us as this church, Emmanuel. This is important for us as the church, Jesus' church in the world, because we must recognize the false narrative. We must recognize the attempts to write God out of the story because we live within this world and we face the competing narratives every day, every hour, every minute of our lives. And so we have to ask the question, whose story are we truly living? There's a real danger and a real tendency for even in the church for us to live in the wrong story. Speaking in the early 1990s, Leslie Newbegin described the danger this way. Most of us who are Christians have been brought up bilingual. We've been trained to use a language which claims to make sense of the world without the hypothesis of God. For an hour or two a week, we use the other language, the language of the Bible. We use the mother language, mother tongue of the church on Sundays, but for the rest of our lives, we use the language imposed by the occupying power. So the question becomes, what is our true mother tongue? The danger is that God's people who are to inhabit God's story can think about life and meaning in terms of expressive individualism, materialism, and consumerism. Our very faith can become plastic, shaped by the plastic narrative of the world. We can begin to think that it's all about us, even the Bible that we read. We can begin to mold our faith like a piece of plastic, focused and centered upon us. And when we do that, when we do that, we step out of the true story that God tells, and we fail to tell the true story to the unbelieving world around us. And in fact, when we mold our faith according to the story the world tells, when we go to talk about Jesus in terms of what the world has to say, all we're doing is giving back to the world what it's already telling itself. We got nothing to offer. We are called to so much more. The church is called to so much more. In our Anglican 39 articles, the church is declared to be a witness and a keeper of holy writ. We are to be the witness and keeper of Scripture. Because it is God's story. We are to tell that story. We have a story to live. We have a story to tell. Because the Holy Spirit inspired scriptures are God's story. The true story. This morning as we conclude, I'd just like to bring our attention to perhaps some application and practice. Australian sociologist John Carroll commented, the Christian churches have comprehensively failed in their one central task, to retell their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. John Carroll is not a believer in Jesus. I believe he's an atheist sociologist, but he says the church's one foundational central task is to retell the story. So if our central task is to tell the story of God, that story which finds its center in Jesus and whose record is inspired by the Holy Spirit, if our central task as the church is to proclaim the story of God as universal truth, how can we go about doing that? And folks, the first thing that we have to do is actually be convinced that the story is true. And we have to know that story. There's a whole lot of Bibles that have too far too much dust on them that reveal a level of lack of knowledge of the true story. 
We have to be convinced that the story of the Bible is the epic story that makes sense of the what and the why of life. We have to be convinced that it is the story that transforms our beliefs, that transforms our lives, and that it is not a private story. We have to be convinced that the Word of God is a very public story which claims to touch every aspect of our lives. And then we have to actually live within that story, letting that story of God be the marinade in which we soak, allowing it to permeate every fiber of our being. That's how we uh, are convinced of it, and that's how we know it, and that's how we live out of it, by soaking in it through reading the Bible, by soaking in it, by hearing it read, by soaking in it, by hearing it proclaimed. The true story is given so that we might know God through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit be transformed into the image of Christ to be truly human. Do we know the story? Do we live the story? Are we convinced that it is true? I believe the Lord is calling His church in this anxious age to be an unanxious presence. And in order to do that, we must know the story. We must live the story. An unanxious presence is one that doesn't get freaked out when believers who've written books suddenly refuse their faith. An unanxious presence is one who doesn't get freaked out when someone who wrote songs that we perhaps sing announced on Instagram they've left behind the, the illogical thinking of Christianity. An unanxious presence doesn't get worried so much about who wins the next election but focuses on the kingdom of God. And an unanxious presence doesn't really worry about whether Alabama will re repeat again, and they will. <laughs> an unanxious presence is the only way that we can offer to the world a narrative that actually makes sense of what is going on with Jesus at the center. And folks, it's only as we know the true story, it's only as we live the true story of God that we actually have anything to offer the world that can bring the world out of the self-deceptions of the competing plastic narratives. Because it's only by knowing the story, it's only by being an unanxious presence in the story that we can offer to this world a different line of thinking, what C.S. Lewis called resistance thinking. It's only by knowing the real that we can recognize and reject the fake. It's only by living in this story that we can offer a courageous refutation where we live in private and in public in the story of God, explaining that God cannot be written out of the story, explaining that God is the one who created. He is the one that sustains, and through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, He is the one who saves Folks, the truth is that the triune God has acted within time and history. The triune God inspired the recording of his actions through the Holy Spirit. The triune God works through the Holy Spirit to give us new life, to call us to live in his true story. In the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, it is God who is at work to empower and enable us to do exactly that, live his true story so that we may be His witnesses, His presence, as an unanxious presence in this anxious world, to offer resistance thinking and courageous refutation for the good of the world and for God's greater glory. So let us be a people of God's true story. 
Let us be a people who recognize the competing stories around us. Let us, by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, find life and meaning and purpose in God's true story, in private and in public. The Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures are God's story, the true story. And this morning, as we transition, having heard the word of God, we will uh, sing praises to our Lord and God. And this morning, perhaps it is, you found yourself convicted of, of not being in God's story. We're going to have prayer teams available during our singing. David and Sally Simpson will be uh, near the rear doors of the building, of the sanctuary. And e Father Ethan and, and Miss Lindsay will be back by the sound booth. If you'd like to be prayed with or prayed for while we're singing praises to the Lord, are you going to respond in some way to this preaching? Find them. Pray with them. Ask them to pray for you. Maybe we need greater strength to live in God's story. Maybe we need to repent so that we live in God's story. What is God doing in you right now because of the preaching of God's word? Come and respond. Take advantage of this time. Give yourself back to the Lord. We'll pray, and then we will stand together, and we will worship through song. Father, praise you and give you thanks. You have not left us to your, ourselves, but you have written us your own story. Come and by the power of your spirit, come and just, we pray, embed it into us, marinate us in it, that we can be soaked and permeated by it, that we can be a people of your story, an unanxious presence in this world. Come and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.